Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Really excited about our episode today. I think our uh, interview is really packed with great information, isn't it, Patty? Oh, it's, it's, I, I have to say, I, I, my head was starting to hurt a little bit, um, yeah. you know, because there was so much right. to take in. But I think it's a, it's a really awesome opportunity, um, yeah. you know, for, for ISOs and agents to, you know, boost their revenues and, and provide a real important service to their merchants. Yeah. And I'd encourage our listeners, you know, the, the first part of the, the interview, we really are kind of setting the context for, um, you know, data breaches and things like that. You know, uh, listen through that. There, do, there is some great opportunities in there for ISOs, especially towards the end of the interview that you're going to want to hear. Um, and then Patty, tell us about the insiders report. Uh, it's all about buy now, pay later schemes, which are really taking on taking off um, yep. these days. I mean, they have been for maybe the last few years, but you know, in an era when people were pinching pennies and yeah. trying to stretch their dollars, uh, this is this is starting to be a real a real a viable option for merchants and an opportunity for ISOs and, and agents. Yeah, I look at it a lot like merchant cash advance in terms of if you know mm-hmm. you want to make sure your merchants know that you offer this. If you do not yes. offer consumer financing programs to your merchants, you're you're missing out because they're going to go in a different right. direction at some point. They are going to offer it at some point in the next 24 months if they have an average ticket above let's say a couple hundred bucks. So you really want right. to make sure they know, hey, I do offer these. You know, if they want it, they're they're going to they're going to get it from you. Um, and then in questions from the right. field, I just talk about, you know, those who are really good at sales, right? And I talk about what they can do in this industry to make that transition from maybe two or 300000 a year as a stockbroker or a realtor. How can they get into our industry? And I talk about leasing and I talk about cash discounting, some controversial things. Uh, you know, if you have a different opinion, I'd love to hear your opinion. Go to my Facebook group or shoot me an email. And uh, I always love to hear people who disagree with me. So uh, you might disagree with me on this one. And that's fine. I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, before we dive in today, Patty, of course, we want to tell everybody that our official sponsor of the podcast is Valor Paytech. Uh, they are an amazing technology company, processor agnostic, leading the way with cash discounting and surcharging. And they have just a ton of omni-channel solutions that a lot of processors, I think, are starting to notice and starting to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that uh, anybody who hasn't yet checked out uh, ccsalespro.com slash Valor. B-A-L-O-R should do so. Absolutely. Well, everybody, there you go. Let's dive in and let's talk about privacy and security. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Okay, well, folks, we're uh, James and I are here today with an old friend of mine, um, Dr. Ross Fettergreen. Um, Ross and I have known each other, we figured out, for over 20 years, which, of course, means that we probably met in college. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But then he went out and became a doctor. So, so Ross, welcome to the podcast. And uh, would really like, uh, you know, a lot of times when we start these podcasts, we like to kind of give people a feel for where our interviewees are coming from. So maybe if you could give us a, a thumbnail sketch of your career thus far and what brought you to Merchant Services and your company, uh, CSR Privacy Solutions. Sure, I'd be very happy to. So uh, my career has always been in the interface between payments and regulatory issues and regulatory matters. Um, When I got out of the military, I went and thanks to the military, got my PhD and uh, my MD from Yale. And then following that, um, I worked at uh, various consulting houses in New York 
uh, and eventually ended up uh, selling several businesses that I developed to um, various uh, venture capital groups. Um, in 1998, after I had sold my third uh, reincarnation, I started CSR. And CSR has always focused on two aspects, which are interrelated and integrated, which are regulatory issues related to payments and transfer of data. Mm -hmm. uh, as the company has matured over the last 20 years, we have focused more on data transfers rather than strictly payments, but it's always been something of great interest. So today, CSR is a rather uh, eminent or preeminent company in the data security space. Uh, we provide our services uh, in over 17 countries, Europe, North America, and APAC. And we principally provide three levels of services. Number one, for the small, medium business or SMB marketplace. Um, and then we do consulting for very large multinationals. And then we do a lot of regulatory work as it relates to various types of actions from regulators against or with merchants. So that's, that's pretty much the story of where we are. Okay, cool. Well, that, that's helpful. And, you know, one of the reasons, James, I wanted uh, Ross to come and be interviewed is because he's been talking a lot about pri uh, personal information yeah. as opposed to, you know, in terms of protecting personal information, right. as opposed to just protecting card information. Right. And I was wondering, I was hoping, Ross, that maybe you could explain what PI encompasses and how it can be compromised. Uh, you know, what, what, what's, what's the appeal here? What are you trying to get at? Very good. Thank you, Patty. So first off, let me step back for a second. PCI is, in fact, from a regulatory viewpoint, a small subset of the broader picture, which is called personal information. And personal information encompasses anything that can be used to identify what's called the data subject or an individual. This, for example, includes financial information, medical information, biometric information, personal data, uh, and it can be material that has been altered or changed as long as it can get back. PCI, on the other hand, is extremely limited in that it really just covers the transactional information for a credit and debit card transaction. On the federal level, credit and debit cards are one of five protected uh, areas, which include credit and debit cards, driver license numbers, social security numbers, and bank routing and transit numbers. The other, what we think is a very important component is as you know, PCI is a sectoral or meaning industrial driven set of requirements mm -hmm. or PCI, whereas PI, personal information is regulatory driven. And currently mm -hmm. there are over 300 regulations in the United States that track this information and that require compliance, all 50 states have them. And right now, 103 sovereign nations have specific regulations as it relates to PI or personal information. Yes, I, my understanding is, is that like in Europe, it's very, it's very big, right? I mean, that's where I first saw it coming up as a, as an important issue. Yes. And in fact, there is something called the General Data Protection Regulation. Right. Right. GDPR, which is uh, a significant regulatory uh, factor within the entire European Union. 
And just like, it's interesting, just like PCI was a quote unquote political settlement between the card brands and American Express and DFS uh, in terms of having a single security mechanism, mm -hmm. GDPR was similar. It was designed to uh, bring together the various rules and disparate rules that the 24 member states and two treaty states of the EU had. So when you were in compliance with one, you were out of compliance with something else. Absolutely identical to what was going on mm -hmm. with the various brands uh, and non-brand cards, Merck Express, DFS, JCB, uh, before PCI was crafted. Hmm. Right. So, so Ross, let me see if I can kind of catch up a little bit and maybe for our listeners as well who, like me, are maybe not quite the experts that you and Patty are in all of this. Um, so obviously when we talk about PCI, we're talking about payment card information. So we're just talking about credit card numbers, expiration dates, CVC codes, you know, cardholder data. But it sounds like what you're saying is more and more as we see these uh, data breaches and things like that, we're seeing kind of a larger concern from consumers uh, that, hey, we want all of our information protected. So you know, obviously PCI is something that a lot of the ISOs and companies in our industry do make a lot of money on. You know, they have these PCI fees that they charge and things right. like that. You know, I would imagine that merchants now are probably starting to want a little bit more for their money and kind of questioning what are we getting and are we is our data really being protected? So can you explain to our listeners, maybe at a high level, how is this idea of PI or your know, personal information protection, how is that going to kind of take over this idea of more of a limited scope PCI compliance? Well, it's a very, very good question, but I think it already has. Um, the fact of the matter is that from a, again, a regulatory viewpoint, no one is sued by the Federal Trade Commission, no one is sued by the attorney generals over PCI per se. What mm. they are sued over is a data breach falling under the rules and regulations of personal information. Mm. And in terms of the cost structures associated with it, it's night and day. Is there an opportunity for ISOs and others in the field to increase and make more money? I believe the answer is yes. When PCI became all the rage, if you will, we all know that um, many in the industry uh, started charging fees for it. Those fees have uh, by and large reduced and the value of the uh, lesser self-assessment questionnaires, the SAQAs and all of this, the level four merchants are really non-existent. In the regulatory world of PI, there is no distinction based upon the size of the company, which there is for PCI, by any method of measurement, number of employees, mm. revenue, mm. et cetera. So mm. I think the value, the importance, and frankly, the trouble that one can get into for failure of doing PI is significantly larger than with PCI. So when we hear these uh, lawsuits that, you know, the, the challenges of the FTC when it's, you know, taking taking companies to task over privacy issues, that's over PI issues, right? Is that what yes, you're saying? Correct. correct. And, mm -hmm. and is the FTC, is that the major regulatory um, body that, that oversees this in terms of from the federal perspective? I realize there's state laws as well, but from a federal perspective, is it just FTC or is DOJ and CFPB right. involved? There, there is the entire alphabet soup of uh, agencies within the federal government. There are now 17 federal, major federal regulations related to personal information. For example, health information is primarily regulated by the Office of Civil Rights, believe it or not, in, in HHS. Oh, really? Huh. 
they, Office of Civil Rights, if you look at their website, they issue right now 12 to 1400 fines per month. Uh, they have the highest referral rate to the Department of Justice of any agency in the United States. They have a 4% referral rate, and that means that 4% of their cases are referred for criminal sanction. That's the only reason why it gets the Department of Justice. In terms of the Federal Trade Commission, they are an important player, but they are far from the only player. Mm -hmm. Treasury is also involved very significantly in those matters which are financial, as is the CFPB. So uh, you can name an agency and you're involved. From a examination viewpoint or from a criminal investigation viewpoint, the United States Secret Service and the Federal Bureau of Investigation are equally involved in these case matters. Hmm. So it, it sounds like if I could, again, if I can kind of back up and frame this a little bit for our listeners, it sounds like what you're saying here, um, Ross, is that our industry is, has really been focused on this one area of PCI and protecting cardholder information. But it sounds like what you're saying is that focus is now out of date and just far too narrow. And in fact, there's this much larger umbrella of personal information that our merchants are coming into contact with, partly because of our point of sale systems and everything else, partly because of things they're doing. And it sounds like you're saying there's this need, this desire in the marketplace that merchants are not looking at it just as PCI. They're saying, we have a risk here. We don't want to break the law. We don't want to get in trouble for the way we're handling customer information. And there might be an opportunity for ISOs to help their small business clients and medium business clients to um, better protect all the information associated with their customers. Is that is that roughly what you're saying? It's not roughly. It's exactly correct. Okay. So it's very well said. So James is very good at putting getting things down. To well, I'm, I'm just trying to James get it myself. <laughs> so now I understand. So Patty, continue. <laughs> no, no, no. That's and I'm gl yeah. I'm glad you you asked that because that was a perfect way to put it. Let me ask you, Ross, because you know a lot of things have changed with this whole COVID nineteen pandemic. Has that had an impact on the on on the need for you know on the on the PI? Um, piece of this? I mean, because it would seem to me, I know I get reports almost every day over across my desk about data breaches. You know, I mean, they seem right. to be really uh, ballooning right now. Is, is that part of what you're talking about as well? Yes, absolutely. The, the whole pandemic, the COVID situation has vastly accelerated the need for protection. And it's happened in four distinct areas. Number one, uh, because of the diffuse nature now of the employees, they are no longer working in hardened work environments. Mm -hmm. So the porosity or how soft their areas of security are in the home vary, but are dramatically sure. increased. Secondly, we have had many clients uh, call us regarding the issues related to personal health information, PHI. Sure. In other words, what are they allowed to get from their employees or visitors? Mm. How are they allowed to report them? How are they allowed to share them? The rules of the game are extremely complex. And frankly, nobody knows what the absolute limits of these rules are. Mm -hmm. Number three, what is very subtle about it, but it is very important about it, is that the transfer of this information is really under attack from a whole bunch of reasons. For example, you had mentioned, Patty, the General Data Protection Regulation. Mm -hmm. Well, the California Act is sort of called mini GDPRs, and there's what's also right. called the New York Shield Act, right. and a whole bunch of other things. 
they really put strong limitations on how this information is transferred and handled. And fourth, the wild card, which really nobody knows at this point, are what are the lawsuits going to look like for failure to comply with unclear or unknown regulations? In fact, right now we are, as an expert witness or members of our team, are involved in over 75 class action lawsuits as witnesses for one side or the other or experts on one side or the other. So this is an absolutely exploding area. And frankly, many small and mid-sized businesses uh, are affected by this. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, well, now that you've explained you know, the importance of this and we, we have a good understanding of the importance of, of protecting personal information, uh, would you, could you maybe discuss uh, what ISOs and their partners can do in terms of like updating their service offerings, uh, you know, in this new era of, of uh, PI protection? Yes, absolutely. First, I just want to step back again for a second and, and give you a, a bit of an understanding of what the legalities of this are. Okay. Uh, because I think that's really important to frame the rest of the conversation as to what we do and why we do it. So, in the real world, people have or people have this belief set that all of these breaches, or the vast majority of these breaches, come from a boogeyman coming through the wall or through the internet and stealing their information. That is so far from what is actually going on, it's it's almost laughable, although I fully appreciate why people think this. The important thing to realize is that they're from a legal viewpoint, and I hate to be so legalistic about it, but I think it's important because it will answer the question. There are only three classifications of data breach. Once you accept the fact that two thirds of these are physical rather than electronic, mm. there, there is nothing electronic about the vast majority. It's mm. basically somebody loses a laptop, somebody loses a paper file, somebody doesn't lock a drawer, somebody does fill in the blank. So literally half of all these events have nothing to do with anything electronically. With that said, and this is again getting back to what I'm gonna be talking about. There are three types of breaches that all breaches can fall into. The first one is called accidental, and that encompasses over 90% of all breaches. And by legal definition, an accidental breach has two characteristics. One, that the person who has the personal information, or PCI for that matter, had the legal authority to have it. And number two, that they were trying to use it for an appropriate use, thus accidental. Mm -hmm. The second group is called malicious, and this is roughly six, 7%, maybe 8% of all events. And in that case, the two tier test is, one, the person that's using the information had the authority to use it, but they are using it for a not authorized or legal position. For a nefarious intent. Uh, yes, exactly. And the best example of that is a disgruntled employee, right. someone who is doing something intentionally to harm whoever they're working for or working with. The smallest number, less than one, way less than 1% is what everybody thinks is going on, which is the hack, quote unquote. And the two-tier test here is that the person going after the information or the entity going in for the information does not have the legal authority to have it in the first place and is clearly using it 
for a nefarious or illegal purpose, sell it on the black market, whatever you will. So you have to keep that in mind. So how do we help ISOs or the merchant services community, number one, gain from this, and number two, really give their merchants a value-added service? Well, we do it by providing a bundle of services. There are three services involved. The first one is a privacy assessment, which is a SaaS-based program, which is specific to the country of origin of the merchant. So we have one for the United States, we have one for Canada, we have one for Australia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what the privacy assessment is, is a very detailed set of questions which allows the user to find out what they need to improve or what they need to have in terms of correct policies, procedures, and practices. So when they go through this, they are given as an end result several things. Number one, a series of scores on the various areas that they examined themselves in. Secondly, a prioritized remediation of how to fix these things. And most importantly, they are given the answer sets in terms of procedures and protocols of how to fix or remediate the problems. When they go through that process, they are then given a trust shield called ID Stay Safe, which indicates that they have successfully completed this remediation process. We have tens of thousands of merchants globally that have gone through this process successfully. So number one of the three-legged stool is a privacy assessment. The second leg of the stool is threat or vector analysis. And again, let me just step back for a second. In terms of the privacy assessment, this is initiated by the merchant. The second leg of this is the threat analysis. We scan their sites for vulnerabilities over a thousand ports, as well as we scan their websites for service packs, for vulnerabilities, et cetera. This is completely passive. Once we have the IP address and we have the URL of the merchant or the mid, if you will, then our systems automatically do this once a month and provide the merchants with a, again, prioritized listing of those areas that need to be questioned, fixed, remediated, et cetera, this is all logged, so there's a permanent record of it in case there ever is a problem, and we follow this up on a monthly basis. So in this case, it's completely passive. The third part of this is our breach analysis. We actually have the U.S. and global patents on breach analysis, and we've had them for many years. Uh, our systems are used globally. Um, and what this is, is we have full operational call centers in Australia, Europe, and North America. If, for example, some merchant suspects or believes that they've had a breach of some nature, they are given an 800 or local number to call our centers. And from there, uh, they are actually assigned a certified privacy specialist who then works them through whatever their uh, need sets are. Uh, this includes regulatory reporting and consumer notification. Interestingly, 60 to 65% of the calls that we get turn out to be non-reportable events for one of a hundred reasons. 
The third that are reportable, they have an average of seven to nine regulatory reports related to one event. And then there's consumer notification on top of that. So it's giving the ISO a tremendous package at, a cream, at extreme value to send to their merchants. It has three components as stated. It has the privacy assessment, which is SaaS-based. It has the scanning and it has the breach reporting. So we believe that this will does a number of things as it does for many of our resellers. Number one, it increases their recurrent monthly revenue. Number two, it increases the valuation of their business. Number three, it increases the retention or the stickiness of their clients and a whole host of things that occur. And we do this without any cost to them, without any capital requirement. We bill them after they bill their merchants successfully. Hmm. So Ross, I have a couple of quick kind of follow-up questions to that because that was very interesting. So <clears throat> when you talked about the shield, I can't remember the exact name at the, at the beginning, the trust shield, I think you said, right? Yes, the ID stay safe. Okay. So when they complete that, I mean, first of all, would it be accurate to say that that's kind of like a beefed up self-assessment questionnaire with just a lot more questions to get more information about how they're handling all information? Is that kind of what it is or? Yes. I mean, that's, that's an absolutely fair okay. uh, statement that it is beefed up to make sure that it um, does account for those issues related to PI. Okay. So, so as a result of that, does that, does this program then replace the current PCI things that the ISO would be doing, or is this an additional program and they would still need some kind of PCI program? We do not replace PCI. There's a significant amount of overlap. Okay. Uh, and ours is much broader, but we do not replace it. Now. Okay. All right. I just want to clarify that. So they would, so these ISOs would still potentially have their same PCI programs, their same revenue that they're collecting. And this would be like an additional, Hey, this is like a, uh, almost like a breach protection type thing that they would be presenting to the, you know, full PI package, I guess is the idea, right? Right. This augments what they currently are selling and have. That's absolutely correct. What are what's the, the what's the sales pitch? I'm just, I, I'm sorry, James. Did you no, want to go ahead? You're fine. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the, you know, if I'm an ISO or an, or an agent, what would be my sales pitch to merchants? Okay. So first off, we do not, suggest anybody sell it. We suggest that they impose it because frankly, we know now with frankly over a quarter of a million users, et cetera, most SMBs would not purchase it. Okay. But what we do provide is a very well-documented set of uh, messaging, which basically points out they need it. With that in mind, we have about an 80 to 85% take rate, but it is not an opt-in, it is an opt-out program. Um, and, you know, to quote Mr. Shepard for a second, in reading his material, he talks about three items for a good sale. So let's talk about that. So what Mr. Shepard advocates is a great opening pitch, prospect daily, and close the offerings. That's what they talk about. Well, we believe this is a great opening pitch. And in fact, we know from Mark Beauchamp and others in Survive and Thrive and other books that have written, that this really represents tier two products according to that algorithm, that being information security and biometrics, which are the classical tier two products under the Beauchamp model. Um, so when you look at both of those things, I think we're fulfilling uh, those requirements because we are giving 
people things that they need. There isn't a merchant out there that isn't aware of identity theft, quote unquote, and the issues involved. In fact, the statistics are rather frightening. 60% of small merchants who've had a data breach are out of business within six months. And that's pretty consistent, has been repeatedly, repetitively shown. So the sales pitch really is we give them informational pieces that inform their merchants that this is being added for their benefit and all the reasons thereof. We then have them uh, provide that. And again, we have about an 80 plus percent stick rate across, um, you know, as I said, about, we have about 170 major resellers in 17 countries. And that seems to be consistent numbers. Hmm. Wow. Very interesting. Um, okay. So um, I, th- I think, yeah, I think I'm, I'm starting to really understand that. It makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea of the opt out as well. I mean, I know a lot of ISOs are familiar with that concept. They'll implement something and, you know, reach out to all of their, maybe they've got 10,000 mids and they'll say, Hey, you know, we've, we've had increasing concerns over, I, you know, uh, issues right. with, with uh, you know, uh, data breaches, et cetera. So here's the program you can opt out if you don't want it. Um, so I get all of that. So can you talk a little bit about for the ISOs that say, okay, that sounds interesting. Maybe we want to pursue that. What's in it for them? What's what's the revenue opportunity? You can't maybe get too specific, but what's kind of the general idea of the revenue? Is this like an ongoing fee that the merchant pays and then the processor gets some of that? Or how does that work exactly? Yeah, no, and I, and I can be very uh, open about that as we always are. This particular program, the buy price, if you will, or the wholesale price is $5 per mid per month. So it's an ongoing cost to the ISO. The average retail price of this product is between about $15 and $40 per month. So it's multiple times Keystone. The reason why I say $15 to $40 is we don't have a single reseller that charges across their portfolio the same price. Mm. Most of them, and we suggest strongly they do that, they divide their portfolio into fourths or fifths and change the pricing based upon the value of that relationship. Hmm. Uh, I don't know of any retail environment where the price is really below $15 per month. And once people are on these programs, they just don't fall off Hmm. um, because they realize that there's such value in it. One of the things that can be argued, which I think is a very true statement, is that people don't realize the value of the product that you're getting. This is why the scanning is passive. We are providing Mm -hmm. them every month with detailed scans, detailed reports, detailed logging, whether they do anything or not. As long as they're willing to give us their IP address and the URL, we're out there doing it. This way, the merchant sees, and all of our programs, by the way, are white labeled, are out there seeing that this, this ISO relationship, increased retention, quote unquote, is providing them with the service. Hmm. Another interesting point is that we have over half of our resellers have set up separate websites or otherwise to sell our product independently of their core services. And this has been extremely successful. Hmm. So not only does this enhance their revenue from their traditional position of an ISO, but if they wish to, we have all the mechanisms in place for them to set up a separate online sales, and in fact, we have several that have done in the physical world as well, position so that they actually open up a completely new revenue stream unrelated to their principal revenue stream from merchant services. Cool. 
Okay, so let's say an ISO decides that they want to work with CSR. What would be the steps that they would take? Um, you know, and how to and how exactly? I mean, I guess you touched on pricing, but how is the billing handled? If you can just touch on that again. Sure. So the way this works is we have a very defined implementation process and we have a team of folks that are implementation managers. Mm-hmm. So once we have X sign a contract, um, this is what occurs. The implementation process is divided into five very well-defined steps. And those steps are number one, an intro call with our manager, whoever is assigned to that company. And during that intro call, which usually lasts 30 minutes to an hour, uh, a number of key points are driven home. Number one, a timeline is established and we meet the team. We discuss with them various opportunities for rollout and try to figure out what would be the best rollout given their circumstances. And we discuss our marketing strategies and collateral. Following that, our second step is training. And this is done by Zoom. In larger relationships, we actually deploy teams to up to five days out to a major relationship, public companies, and very large institutional users of our service. But in general, it's done by Zoom. It lasts 90 minutes to 120 minutes. And there are multiple training schedules if needed. And there's additional training for sales and proactive selling. So we really want to make sure, and it is the only job of the implementation team to absolutely make sure that the partner is comfortable and familiar with our processes. Step three, we provide them with announcements and introduction letters according to the schedule, including marketing pieces, which are customized for the particular environment and schedules to count back from the merchant's launch date. So all of that is done correctly. Step four is launch. Uh, We provide welcome letters, messaging for invoices and all of that, and help the uh, partner respond to customer inquiries and stand in their shoes where needed. And finally, step five is where we the service begins to move forward and our breach and other services are available, people are using them, and then we bill the merchant uh, based upon the number of users that they have declared and registered uh, at that $5 price um, on an ongoing basis. So since we've been doing this for so long, and I don't want to say that we know every possible thing that uh, exists, we don't, but we have a pretty good handle on a process that has worked extremely well from very large relationships to reasonably small relationships. Well, this is, uh, this has been really enlightening. I have yep. to, it's, it's been a, a lot of information. So, and I'm, I'm sure I know I have more questions. I'm sure our listeners have some more questions. If somebody wants to, uh, you know, reach out and learn more about what CSR is offering, uh, where would you send them? Well, sure. First off, they could go to our website, which is csrcyberprivacy.com. Again, csrcyberprivacy.com. We have a dedicated telephone number for merchant services, and that's one 833 899 Again, 1-833-899-9929. And my direct email is Ross, my first name, dot Fedegreen, F-E-D-E-R-G-R-E-E-N, at CSR Cyber Privacy, 
cybersecurity.com, cyber privacy. I think I might've said cybersecurity. This website is CSR Cyber Privacy. We have a second website, they find us anyway. But we have a dedicated website, which is csrcyberprivacy.com. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you, Ross. I really appreciate you taking the time to educate us and our listeners this week. Great info. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Jim. So everybody, we're talking about Valor Paytech. And, you know, Patty, today we really just want to talk about cash discounting. We've been talking about it already and, uh, you know, in the questions yeah. we feel I talk about it. And, um, you know, the truth is if you still are using technology from the processor, from the acquirer that's really specific, I, I personally don't know of any, like, fantastic solutions out there that I feel like are really industry-leading, cutting-edge. Whereas mm -hmm. with Valor Paytech, you can do the cash discounting or the surcharging, but of course you can do it in this omni-channel integrated way with gateways and all that, right? Right, right. Which just, I think, makes it really slick, you know? I mean, it's not like you have to go in and you have to start changing things just to be able to, you know, offer a, a you know, a streamlined cash discounting or yeah. surcharging option, you know? Yep. It's just, it's just, you know flip a switch if you don't yeah. want to, you know, I mean, what I, one of the things that I thought was very cool when they gave us the demo is that, you know, if they, you know, let's say I have a, I'm a merchant, I have a really special customer, mm -hmm. you know, yep. I could just say, eh, you know, one button, one click of the, of the mouse. Yeah. And the, 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 uh, you know, the added charge goes away. Right. Um, right. Having that wave to so, fee option. You know, what's interesting too, Patty, yeah. there's actually a large ISO that I do consulting for that just, went with Valor Paytech and they're, you know, using them to sell hundreds of cash discount deals a month. And one uh -huh. of the, one of the reasons they did it, I thought was kind of interesting because they said that right now about a third of all the cash discount sales that they're making is they're uh -huh. actually flipping people from existing cash discount programs because really they're having markets that because are already of the getting simplicity, that saturated. Right? Yeah. And so what happened was a lot of these early cash discount deals that were made two or three years ago, the pitch to the merchant was, we're going to wipe out your processing, but the trade-off is you don't have any good technology, right? Like right. we're going to give you a crappy right. terminal. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't connect to anything, but you're, there's no processing fees. And the right. merchant was like, well, okay, fine. It wasn't ideal, but they said, sure. Now, you know, this company's coming in and saying, well, guess what? You don't have to make that trade-off anymore. We're going to use Valor Paytech. You can have a great, you know, online ordering. You can have all this amazing stuff that we have, and the the gateways and the terminals, and it integrates with POS systems. You know, it's like this is like an awesome solution, and um, it's you know processor agnostic, so they can you know put it in the and you know go out there and sell it. So I think you know as cash discounting is maturing. I think more and more this idea of providing additional technology with the cash discount, it's like, hey, they're already bought into cash discounting. Now let's get them some technology. So I think that's going to play a role as well. I, I agree. And I think, you know, you talk about, you know, the clunkiness of the of the initial um, services, cash discounting services. And, you know, you look at today where so many merchants are doing online ordering and, and e-commerce right. right. that you know, to have a robust solution that can that can support that as well as once this mess is over and we go back right. to walking right. into stores again. Yeah, yeah um, I think both. it's really important. Well, hey, everybody, if you'd like to check it out, please head over to ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R, ccsalespro.com slash V-A-L-O-R. Fill out the form, get a free demo, check it out. We know that you are going to love it. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training 
to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, I actually just did a Q&A session. I've been doing some live ones and, and things like that. And I actually just did one with um, a rep who was asking me about um, selling merchant cash advance versus selling mm. merchant services. And um, that's not the topic here for the for the questions in the field, but it brought up an interesting thing. I want to talk about what you can do to make a lot of money if you are an amazing sales professional in this business. And I wasn't sure the right way to title this particular segment today, but it really struck me. So I'll give you a little background. I was talking to this uh, guy. He um, he was a stockbroker for 15 years and he sold stock okay. over the phone. So this is wow. like uh, Wolf of Wall Street type you know, situation. Right. <laughs> now, obviously with more integrity, but this idea of, you know, um, you know I told, like I told him, I said, I imagine you could sell ice to an Eskimo, you know? Um, this idea of, you know, being really, really good at sales. And, um, I, you know, again, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a the fine line between confidence and arrogance. And so I, I think I can say with confidence right. that I'm, I'm in that same group. I know how to sell anything to anybody. And I know a lot right. of other sales professionals are the same way. And I think a lot of them, they come to the industry and they're not sure where their skill set is going to make the most money. You know, so the question I guess I'm answering mm -hmm. today is, Given the assumption that you're incredibly good at sales <laughs> and you're new to this industry, what should you sell? Mm -hmm. And I'm right. gonna I'm gonna say something. I know I'm gonna get some negative feedback. I know I'm gonna get people that are gonna email me and say, I'm, you know, James, you're turning to the dark side. Um, but remember, I'm just a greedy capitalist. So um, you know, I would sell cash discounting and I would lease terminals. That's just what I would do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now um let's talk about this for a second because I know this will be a topic people will say, you know, well. First of all, let's talk about cash discount for just a second. Cash discount is a no-brainer. It's a win-win-win. The merchant loves right. it. It's actually more fair to the consumer, as we've talked about numerous times on the podcast, um, because the pricing is actually fair based on who's, you know, who's paying more to get more value. Um, and also, it's obviously a huge win for the ISO, and, and in this case, for the agent, who's making $100 to $200 a month in residual income off of every merchant that they sell, you know, depending on the size of the merchant and the compensation package. So it's a no-brainer there. Right. So then the question becomes, why would you lease a terminal? Um, so a couple of things about that to keep in mind. Um, is it harder to lease a terminal than to give one away? Yes. Um, but for somebody who's really, really good at sales, leasing the terminal, it's not going to be incredibly difficult to get a yes um, because you're, you're going to wipe out you know, $500 to $1,000 a month in fees and you're going to replace it with right. a $49 a month lease or something like that. So the only real right. question becomes, is it morally right to do a lease? There's a lot of people in the industry that say, well, leasing is evil, leasing is wrong. And I, I, I have to say, and you know, just throwing it out a little bit here, that I really believe most of those people are being very hypocritical. I'll be honest. Um, I can't tell you how many of these people I talk to that you know, I say, okay, so do you do a price increase on a regular basis? Right. You know, right. Yeah, we just did one. It was a 15 basis point price increase. OK, so your larger merchants, you're going to charge them an extra ninety dollars a month. You're not even going to ask them or tell them. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if I want to do a forty nine dollar moral. Right. But if I want to do a forty nine dollar a month lease up front and I'm actually going to sell it and get the merchant to say yes and sign a piece of paper agreeing to it. That's not right. Uh -huh. You know, 
Or it's like, well, no, I, we always do free equipment, free equipment. Really? Okay. So you don't have any fees for equipment or paper or supplies? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, we have a $20 a month, you know, equipment, whatever, rental fee. And then we have a $10 guarantee equipment, per, you know, whatever fee. And then we have a $10, you know, I'm like, okay, well, so, so I can't go to a merchant and sell them at, you know, uh, with no monthly fees at all and just one $39, $29 lease for uh, X amount of months and then it's over and they don't, you know, like, so I, right. you know, I would say, you know, hang on a second, right? Like, you, you know, a lot of people come and say, well, James, I want to give the merchant the best deal possible. Well, the best deal possible is obvious. Give it to them at cost. Don't make any money and right. give everything away for free, right? You don't want to give the merchant the best deal possible. That's not what you really want. What you want is you want to make money and you want to do it in a way that you feel like you can sleep at night and you feel like is you're giving them a good value, right? So my right. my belief is, and I'm sure in two or three years, you'll hear me say it's stupid to lease terminals when you're selling cash discounting because it will be. Right now, it's not because it's still new. Merchants, it's a huge value. You're you're like forging ahead. Many of you are in a market where cash discounting is still not like predominant and it's hard work, you know, and you're convincing them to do something that's very valuable that is going to make them a ton of extra money. So I think coming in as somebody who really knows how to sell, doing that lease and making that thousand, two thousand dollar commission up front off of that lease, you know, for uh -huh. there's a lot of agents that are making one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars a year in another industry because they're absolutely amazing and they see the residual opportunity in our industry and they're like, boy, I would love to get in on that, but I can't afford to make forty thousand the first year, right? Come in and sell 12 right, leases right. a month, you know, and then you can build that residual up. And by the time it's harder to lease on cash discounting, guess what? You're already going to have residual at 15, 20,000 a month and you're golden. Now you can give it away for free and go with that. So right. my, you know, a couple of points I wanted to make was number one, I do not think leasing is evil, any more evil than any other way that you make money. Ultimately, the merchant's paying money. And are they getting sufficient value? And are you being honest and transparent? I think it's evil to trick the merchant into a lease. But it's not mm -hmm. evil to sell a lease with transparency lease. and honesty, right? Right. Um, and I even right. tell merchants right. all the time, you know, I'll tell them and say, look, you know, you're, you know, when you're paying for this, the the this little terminal is not going to be worth the three thousand you're going to end up paying and over, over this period of time. What I'm the reason I'm charging you this forty nine dollars is because I am going to provide you with a ton of value, and this is the way I extract that value, right? We're going right. to guarantee that right. we'll replace the terminal anytime you need, and you know whatever your specific Supplies, value whatever is. you needed, right. right, right. And so, and again, it's the right. same the same reason you would charge them a twenty dollar a month this or a nine ninety five that. You know, it just you can put it into a lease, and for those that are trying to make that leap from high earner in in sales world to coming to our industry, leases are actually a valid option right now because of cash discounting primarily, and it's a good way to go about it. And so, um, I also am not saying that. I think everybody should lease. I don't think that. I think giving a free right. terminal away is a great strategy. It's one that I used for the last few years I was selling full-time because there wasn't cash discounting and leasing had kind of gotten a little bit out of date. So I, I did the free terminal. So I think you should just embrace the reality of your market and make sure you can sleep at night with your decisions. But for me, right. if I was a $200,000 a year stockbroker and I saw this industry and wanted to take advantage of this opportunity and I wanted to serve small business owners, I would sell cash discounting and lease terminals for as long as that made sense until I got to the point where I had the residual to where I could then step back a little bit and look at what, what made the most sense at that point. Very, very good, James. Logical, I think. Thanks for that. Awesome. Thanks, Patty. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. 
For nearly 40 years, the Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Okay, well, you know, several items have come across my desk uh, the past few weeks regarding buy now, pay later um, schemes. Yeah. Now, you know, we've talked about this in the past, right? Sure. Uh, Mark Bochamp uh, from SurvePay was on our one of the right, podcasts. Right. They've got FlexBuy. And, uh, Flex five, right? right. Uh, that was the other one that I remembered we yep. had done. Sure. And uh, I kind of think of these things as a 21st century iteration of layaway plans, right? Right. Right. Um, sure. It's kind of similar to that. And, and it's where the where and, the merchant you know, doesn't have to take the risk, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, just as a little refresher to our listeners, this is how it works: a shopper pays for their purchases, purchase balances over time, usually like four to six weeks. And um, the, the debits come from their checking account and retailers pay a transaction fee uh, for the service. Mm -hmm. um, the transactions carry, they can carry, some of them carry interest, some of them don't. Um, but obviously if customers miss payments, there's a late payment uh, and, and so forth. Right. You know, a lot of merchants see this as a sensible alternative to credit cards because mm -hmm. of consumers who are leery of stockpiling debt, but they still want right. to sell their goods to them, right? Right, um, right. And, uh, and also because, you know, the trend, most of these transactions, I didn't realize this until I did some research, most of these transactions don't get reported to credit reporting agencies. Hmm, really? Really, because they're not a revolving credit. They're kind of hmm. like a layaway. And so- That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know it's yeah, funny. I, you're, it's funny you bring this up. I actually, uh, for the first time two days ago, actually used uh, this. Uh -huh. um, what happened was I was making a shopping with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, not in this case. It was myself. But I was making a large purchase, and uh, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I realized that I did not have a credit card that had a. I didn't have a, a debit card or a credit card where I could run a transaction of this size. Oh yeah, and yeah. the salesperson very very much wanted to close the sale. You know, of wanted course. me to pay, and so she said, "Well, I tell you what, if you use our consumer financing product, we'll give you zero percent, you know, financing for up to twenty four months." And I'm like, mm -hmm. "I said, well, you know, okay, let's do that because sure. I I want to get this done." And then I said, Pay it there, off in a month, it right? There's really no prepay matter, penalty." Right? And so, yeah, it was very interesting. Um, and so it was interesting because it did actually ping my credit. I get a little alert, you know. So it did okay. it did ping my credit. But to your point, it actually did not show up. It hasn't yet, at least, on my credit report um, mm -hmm. a, as a revolving line. It just, you know, yeah. pinged the report to, in order to approve me. Um, and, and, you know, I also think it is interesting, unlike layaway programs, um, you mentioned four to six weeks, which I know a lot of programs are like that, but there are quite a few now that are even 12, 24 month programs. Yeah. So it allows and people to I've, do layaway that I are much longer. Yeah. Yeah. And as I've explained to you, I've done the same thing, you know, yeah. for like, uh, 10, six months. Usually I get that, you know, it's been a six month deal. Right. But right. like you, I've checked and it doesn't show up on my credit report. So yeah. I kind of like the idea because it mm. lets me spread, the, you know, spread the pain. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very, very, it was a very interesting experience. And I will say too, it was uh, surprisingly easy. I, you know, one of the reasons I never do that yes. kind of stuff is because to me, it's like, you know, just a, a big 
pain in the neck for nothing. I'll just usually call the the bank. This happened to me on a holiday, but I usually just call the bank and say, hey, increase my limit for a one-time spend and I'll use my debit card. But in this case, I couldn't right. do that. And it was like, how am I going to pay? The, it was like, I don't know how to get my money from my bank over to this merchant. And so um, it literally took me, I would say two minutes to get right. this done. And I'm, this was like a big transaction. And so it was, I was really, uh, I was impressed actually. It was pretty, it was pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you say that because I just, I came across a survey by a, a group called the Sur- Ascent, which is a, yes. um, uh-huh. a service of Motley Fool, right? Uh-huh. You, if you're familiar with Motley Fool, which I'm sure you are. Yes. They surveyed consumers and found a third had used one of these services hmm. in the last year. Wow, really? I didn't realize it had that kind of market penetration. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was really surprised. And so I, when I saw that, I did actually do a little bit of research on market penetration. Um, and uh, what I thought was interesting is, you know, we know Amazon does it. That's been a big, they've right. been a big purveyor big with their mm-hmm. buy now, pay later. I think it's called the, what is it? What are they called? They changed service? it, I think, now. It's uh, Amazon something now. I can't remember. Something yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. But Saks Fifth Avenue and Target, as well as H&M and uh, Timberland, and a lot yeah. of the big brands are doing this now. Right, right. Um, there's a there's an online portal for resellers, retailers offering buy now, pay later called Klarna, K-L-A-R-N-A. Hmm. They said that they're... Um, they're up in uh, in excess of 100%. Transactions are up 100% this year. Really? Yeah. And they're in 60,000 stores nationwide. And apparently, I mean, the way this works is you get a a Klarna mobile app, which creates a one-time virtual card for the transaction. Okay. 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 And it gets, uh, they add it to their preferred digital wallet and then they can just, it becomes a contactless transaction also, right? Wow. Um, Afterpay is another company that offers a similar online type solution. It says it's um, transactions at retail clients jumped 87% from January through November Hmm. compared to an 18% increase in debit card payments at at its participating merchants. Hmm. And eleven percent drop in credit card payments. Hmm. Wow! And over the over the this was the this was the t- statistic that really got me though. Over the Black Friday weekend, yeah. Afterpay said these transactions were up a hundred and eighty six percent over all over its cumulative of four years of transactions. <sighs> it's been in business for four years. It wow. said on that weekend it did more tra- almost. 200% as many transactions as it, had, as it had done in the previous four years. Good night. Um, wow. Which I think really speaks to the whole coronavirus and does. people feeling yeah. pinched mm. and so forth, right? Yeah, I would agree with you there. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it's also the market's heating up. There was a, there's a firm company called um, a firm that's uh, based yeah, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. I've heard. Yeah. They just purchased Paybright, which is a leading provider up in Canada. Right. And paid over a quarter of a billion dollars, 265 million hmm. wow. for this. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, hmm. and here's, a, I, I found the quote, I found the story on um, NBC.com. They quoted this guy, Brad Lindenberg, who's the co-CEO of QuadPay, yet another one of these companies. Sure. And he thinks it's going to, that buy now, pay later, it's going to become ubiquitous, as ubiquitous as free shipping. 
hmm. uh, is today. Yeah. He yeah. said, quote, every site, I think, within a matter of a couple of years will have an option to pay in installments. Yeah. And and I think the thing, too, is I think it's just becoming and it kind of it's interesting how it tags in with our uh, interview we just did there. I mean, it. I think as mm -hmm. personal information, it's like a two way street. It's becoming much easier to share your personal information and to get right. digitally like instant results of like you're approved for this or whatever. But then at the mm -hmm. same time, of course, that adds that burden of there's all this extra information digitally floating around out there. We need to be careful what we do with it. But right. uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, the real what I get from the bottom line on this is that, you know, if you're catering to small businesses, particularly those selling, you know, big ticket items. Yeah. You know, like electronics and furniture. Right. You need to be taking notice of this and, and take action to integrate this into your service offerings. I could not agree more. We've had a lot of in the Facebook group. A lot of people have been talking about it. You know, um, it's, mm -hmm. it's just one of those things. And again, like we mentioned, Surf Credit, we mentioned Flexbuy. I mean, there definitely are programs out there. You can go back and listen to previous episodes. Um, but there are definitely right. great reseller programs out there where you can make a decent amount of profit uh, from giving mm -hmm. your merchants this ability. And of course, for them, it helps them to be able to, um, you know, and obviously this is getting weighted more towards the higher ticket size merchants, obviously. Of course. You sure. know, if you're, if you're a, you know, a pizza shop, it's not going to let people buy now and pay later, you know, but no, who know. wants to pay for the pizza a month from now. <laughs> right. So I think uh, that's obvious, but I think, um, you know, it's a great opportunity. So thanks for bringing it to our attention again, Patty. Yeah. And just in case people are looking, I did a little bit of research. We covered this in 2018 and in 2019. Cool. So okay. there we go. go through our archive. And if you want to find out more about FlexBuy and SurfPay. Awesome. Good stuff, Patty. Thanks, James. This episode of the Merchant Sales Podcast was brought to you by Valor Paytech, the technology company that is revolutionizing cash discounting and surcharging with innovative features like dual mid support, waive the fee options, and even adding non-cash adjustment charges to tips. Now, all of this is made possible by a variety of technology devices and solutions such as gateways, tabletop point of sale devices, and features like SMS text messaging and e-invoicing, all with cash discounting in mind. Valor Paytech, bold ideas, smart execution. Make sure you head over to ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R, ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R. Schedule your free demo today and watch videos and learn more about this amazing technology solution. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.